Matt McInerney, New York. Andy Mangold, Baltimore, Maryland. Dan Auer, San Francisco. It's May 29th, 2014. This is On The Grid, episode 68. We actually recorded this before our Swift chat, but I wanted to put that one up first to be more timely. Thought this one would age better because we talked about... The distant future. The distant future. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, here we go. Gentlemen, how is your week? Guys, I have a fake real tooth now. Oh, oh wow, like a, like a crown on your tooth. Yeah, I finally have the real crown. It's all cemented, and it's in there, and it's functional. It's, it, I get to use it as a tooth. It's great. Now, is it some sort of super tooth that is immune to cavities and decay? Yes. Is it, is it really? I was wondering if we had the ability as humans to make a material that was stronger than enamel that would actually, like, you know, behave like a tooth. Technically, okay, so what they had to do is that there was the normal tooth, and they gutted that out pretty good, and then they filled it in with, like, sanitary, like, toothy stuff that's kind of <laughs> like enamel. Technical term, Dan. Yes, it is, actually. <laughs> and then uh, what they have to do, and that's all, like, the roots and everything, and then they have to basically just, like obliterate what was the tooth outside of your gums and shape it in a way that like something could be cemented onto it yeah um and so they did that and then a temporary um crown and uh, you know that worked and everything but this new one basically just pops on to the you know where the tooth normally sticks out of the gums and that is all like a composite gold metal thing actually gold Uh, oh it's still metal yeah I thought that was like something we abandoned in the mid '80s, and we still did whole metal things. You got a metal tooth. Yeah. So the the Dude, benefit dope. is well, it's a um, it's a molar, which you know we use to grind, so it, it does a lot of work. Maybe um, you so, use it to grind. Don't speak for my molars. Whoa, whoa! But those teeth actually, it it are more beneficial to have as metal crowns uh, because it acts more like enamel, like the the gold composite ones act more like enamel. And uh, they're much stronger, so they last longer. Where the, like, there's the new ones that you can do for, like, your front teeth that are uh, a composite of porcelain and some other stuff. And those are more, like, cosmetic. They look like a tooth. So there's, there's different options depending on the tooth that you need to get completely wiped out and replaced with. Well, aren't you a pro? I know. And I would imagine, to Andy's question, wouldn't most material that humans make be stronger than enamel? Is enamel oh. even that strong? I, I, think you're, I don't think you're giving teeth enough credit. I think they're pretty <laughs> remarkable. It's probably a very hard thing to design for, because you have to pick a material that is going to be resilient to decay. I mean, it's probably a pretty harsh environment in your mouth. It's wet all day, pretty much. It's got to deal with bacteria and with uh, the acidity of your saliva. It's not a... It's not a sort of welcoming environment to sort of average materials. And, and then, Dan's mouth has to deal with endless Twinkies. That can't be good hey, for you. Ooh, burn. Oh, no, no, Ooh, guys, guys. No, burn. we got to pause for a sec. No, there was, there was this period of time right before the whole Twinkie outage um, where I did not know this thing existed. It's called a chocodile. Uh, that sounds familiar, but I'm not, I don't know if, I don't know if I can picture one. I'm so yeah. proud to say it does not sound familiar to me. No, no, so it's, um, <laughs> shut up, it's good. <laughs> it's a Twinkie, but everything about it is chocolate instead. It is so good, and it's like encased in chocolate. No, this is why I have to get root. I was gonna say, did, is there any surprise <laughs> that this is happening to you? Spoilers. Did you, did you guys get? Uh, did you guys get fresh peas at your local farmers market this week? It's pea season in the Northeast. That's that's what I did. Now, are you talking about this because this is in the chocodile family? Is that part of the? Chocodile I just thought it'd be pyramid? interesting to compare and contrast Dan and my <laughs> approach to the things we put in our mouths. I was very. I bought four pounds of fresh peas. I waited in line for thirty minutes for this week at the Baltimore Farmers Market. Oh my gosh! And Dan discovered a chocodile. 
Yeah, well, I was yeah. gonna say I know they recently designed the pyramid to be more of a plate, and I think one portion is chocodile, and the <laughs> other part is peas. <laughs> they designed it to be the food swamp, and it's infested with chocodiles. They can run faster in a straight line than you can. Did you know that? <laughs> That's why you zigzag when you're running away from them. <laughs> you, you, you got to zigzag from the chocodile. You got to juke it. You got to break its ankles off. <laughs> like running from a sniper. It's... This, is a, this, is a, this is a good vibe we got going on. I like this vibe. But I was saying about teeth, like yeah, like it's. One of the challenges is making something that's good enough to like survive the hostile environment that is your mouth. And the other thing is you can't make it too strong, otherwise it'll just tear apart the rest of your teeth. Like you couldn't that's make a like, good a, point, like yeah. a titanium. You can't have a titanium tooth or your Yeah. You'd need to be Wolverine to heal so fast. Diamond tipped super tooth would just like tear the rest of your mouth to pieces and be the the Highlander of teeth, the one and only one that remained after it destroyed the rest of your uh, sort of jaw. So yeah. I bet it's very hard to make man made teeth surrogates. Seriously, if somebody can get me a box of chocodiles, I've not had some in like a two years. I feel like you'd be the kind of person that then like collect like, you know, rare old snack foods that are long discontinued <laughs> on eBay that are full of so many preservatives <laughs> they they last just fine. Did you know there's a whole chunk of people that do this that buy Oh, this is real? I didn't oh, know this is wow. real. Oh, this is uh, I, I found out about this when researching uh how to purchase long discontinued cereals. Uh and I discovered there is a whole market for people that will buy uh, you know, totally expired uh long discontinued foods on ebay uh to eat them because you know foods are still full of super to eat them yeah oh. oh to eat them specifically to eat them uh and the prices can be pretty insane because people really want certain like cereals or candies that have been you know removed from the shelves now uh, it's a cereal thing like somebody's trying to find a bo- box of like fluty flakes or something like an old novelty I, I think it's mostly like i don't think it's like a i want you know the box that had a celebrity on it or something i think it's like this is my favorite cereal from when I was a kid. They stopped making it 12 years ago, but I still buy it regularly on eBay in bulk because I want it. Uh, and then there are wow. sellers that, like, this is what they specialize in. They go to places where you can get expired foodstuffs, wherever that is, who knows where, and then sell it on eBay. I wonder if you can get Surge, that old soda that they stopped making, like... Dude, I promise you can. You can, oh, get, you can get, like, you can get, like, Actually, I would trust of... that Surge would probably be just fine. It'll yeah. It would probably be okay. Most of these things are things that would be just fine. It's like, oh, this is 70% sugar uh, that's been sitting in a cardboard box. I'm sure nothing has gone too badly wrong with it. Not much can live in sugar. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's the thing that happens. eBay is a beautiful, beautiful deep well of, of society. I love it. Kind of terrifying, though, eating, uh, eating a box of expired candy. I, I, had a, I had a food safety thing this week where, you know, I, I cook a lot. And, uh, you know, I, I bought a big pork butt from the farmer's market again. Uh, from a local sort of farm that you know grows pigs and raises them and then turns them into pork butt you can eat and it sat in the fridge for about six days i was planning on doing it uh i got the big shoulder for a party we were having and by the time i sort of got around to eating it i opened up the packaging and it smelled terrible it smelled rancid of like rotten eggs and sulfur and i was like man this pork went bad like there's no way i can cook this it smells terrible and i did a little bit of googling and you know if you google should i eat pork that smells horrible uh there's tons of people on the internet that say, no, it smells bad. Of course you shouldn't eat it. But they're not basing that on any actual knowledge or scientific understanding. They're just basing that on, I was taught not to eat things that smell bad. So I'm going to reiterate online, you shouldn't do that. But if you dig really deep, I found a few people that were saying that, yes, cryopacked, like vacuum-sealed pork uh, that's very fresh will oftentimes develop this sort of ammonia, sulfury kind of smell to it. Uh, and it's actually like totally fine to eat. Uh, you just have to sort of trust that it's going to be okay and go for it. I did, and it was totally great. Uh, and then I remembered how many times I had 
at some point in my life questioned like the food safety of something I was cooking. Like, is this okay? Did I cook this too much? Is it too underdone? Who knows? Uh, mm -hmm. But never in my life have I ever gotten anybody sick. Uh, I think it's just part of American culture is like we are very hyper, hyper food safety conscious, uh, more so than we should be, like to, I think to an unhealthy degree. I actually uh, agree with that. I'm sure that far too much food gets thrown away for no reason. I, I tend to be the kind of guy who will just eat uh, the thing that's been out for far too long and err on that side, and someone will have to yell at me and say, actually, I can remember a story of my girlfriend uh, before she moved in watching me eat a burrito that had been on the counter for, like, two days oh and screaming and being like, what are you doing? we got to go to the and hospital! <laughs> I probably had the burrito, like, halfway between my hand and my mouth and with my mouth open going, I wasn't going to eat that. I don't know. <laughs> it's never killed me before. I put an article on the Reddit that is only very vaguely related to design, but fits in with this conversation. So I'll mention it briefly, which was uh, called In Defense of Pink Slime. And it talks about how, you know, 10 years ago, there was this big outcry when people found out that what goes into their like meats at their like, you know, fast food burgers and stuff was this kind of pink slime that was largely made up of the offcuts of, you know, regular beef. Uh, and people were like, oh, it's terrible. We shouldn't eat that stuff. It's garbage food. Uh, but it's actually just a really super efficient way to like use all of the cow as opposed to throwing out a bunch of stuff that would otherwise be good. Uh, and it's totally edible and very affordable, a great way to sort of get calories and, you know, be a society that produces food. But, uh, people got all branding, man. You know, people, people branded that pink slime and made it evil. And all of a sudden people didn't want it anymore. So pink slime actually is, well, what is it? Is it just not nutritious, but it is indeed food or is it nutritious and it just looks gross? Um, I don't know it's nutritional content, but it's like, you know, you take a cow and you cut off the steaks and you cut off the, you know, cuts that are recognizable to people. Uh, and you're kind of left with some connective tissue and some of like, you know, the meat clinging on to the rest of the skeleton that otherwise would go wasted. Uh, you kind of like take that and you blend it all up and you clean it and you make mm -hmm. it into a filler that you mix with, you know, clean, lean meat uh, to make like ground beef and stuff. Um, people got all on tizzy about it. And uh, but it turns out it's totally fine. There's no nothing wrong with it health wise. There's nothing, you know, bad about it. It's just a really good way to make food. Interesting. I have it. seen Jamie Oliver make it before. Do you yeah. see that? Jamie episode? Oliver apparently was this was the like main spearhead of this sort of issue where he like did it on his show. And then he, you know, spewed all this propaganda about how they use ammonia and ammonia is a poison and they don't have to tell you they use ammonia. It isn't that horrible. And it's like, well, it was used to clean it like. We use lots of stuff that you're not supposed to eat when you're cleaning meat that we don't tell people about. The FDA doesn't require you to. I just learned so much. Yeah, it just it's interesting that, you know, to me that was like a branding thing. Like, look how interesting it is that you can make this thing that is actually great in every way seem evil by pretending that people have been tricked. But no one knows where any of their food comes from. You could pick anything and turn it into something evil that people didn't know about if you just spun it the right way. I guess that is true. This has been Food and Dental Explorations Weekly. Thanks for tuning into the show. <laughs> hot Tooth Talk. Yeah, Hot hot Tooth Talk is a bit. Mouse, Dan's Mouth Adventure uh, every week. <laughs> oh, God, that sounds awful. Yeah, I know. It's pretty bad. I thought about your mouth going on an adventure, too. All right. Uh, you want to you wanna read the question, Matt? Or Yeah, I'll read the question. Well, I mean, th first of all, I mean, thank you. I mean, we got, like, after... The survey where a bunch of people said like why don't you answer listener questions on the show and we were like hey you don't send us any listener questions and then they did some people have some people have stepped up and sent us listener questions so <laughs> continue to do this i would love to this this is i think it's a good way to to sort of get topics because it helps 
I think it, it gives me confidence to know that somebody at least cares about the things we're talking about, even if it's yeah. just one person. So keep sending in the questions. That that's helpful in terms of like starting uh, starting discussions. I think. Yeah, and I think if it's uh, if it's a question that could take a whole episode, I don't have a problem with taking a whole episode to answer the question. And no, if we get not. a bunch of short shorter questions, then we'll make a segment out of it. But I think do a uh, lightning round. There you go. So anyway, do like a hot or not. People could just send us in things if they want to know if they're hot or not, and then we tell them whether it's hot or, or not. That's the, that's the day the show ends. Startups. <laughs> Hot. <laughs> Pink slime. Hot Not. again? Hot Wait, again. I thought, it, I thought you said it was hot now. Lukewarm. Lukewarm pink slime. <laughs> There's a great, there used to be a great Sounding America segment called Jordan Ranks America. Or do they still do that on Jordan Jesse Go? I think Jordan does it on Bullseye now every once in a while. What's hot? What's not? I want people to send us things like, you know, sans serif, and we're like, not hot. <laughs> <laughs> this is the year of the serif. And they're like, teal, and we're like, teal is so hot. It's in. Anyway, don't do that. We shouldn't have that segment <laughs> of the show. I like answering the questions that take a long time to answer, because then we can hide in the length of our answer. And it's very hard to pin down something we said. We can constantly hedge our bets, uh, second-guess ourselves, and then uh, you can't possibly blame us. No blaming. All right. This, this question was sent by Michael Worthington. Thanks, Mike. Uh, thanks, Mike. We appreciate it. Here's the contents of the letter. Hi, guys. Big fan. Been listening since episode 12, I think. Something like that. I've been mulling over this question for some time, but I'm not getting anywhere with it. So I'm hoping you guys can help. I'm currently designing the UI for a project that won't see the light, for, <laughs> that won't see the light of day for another four to five years. I try to stick to the fundamentals to ensure a long life, but trends come and go quicker each year, and I'm afraid it'll look stale upon release. I feel like four to five years is just on the cusp of major design transitions, so I wonder if it is ever even possible to design for that near future. Um, or, like, he added a too long, didn't read. He must be a Reddit user. Uh, too long, didn't read. I'm designing a UI that won't be shipped for another four to five years. How do I make sure it will still look fresh in 2019? Is that possible? Thanks, Mike. Gentlemen, is that possible? Fresh like an old chocodile you bought on eBay. Um, <laughs> I, I have questions. I, this just brings up questions for me, because... Uh, Part of me is like, okay, designing on something that's going to take four or five years to come to fruition, that's cool. sounds like it's cool to work on a project like that. But all the things that, like, I feel like you can't possibly be making decisions about the stuff that wouldn't look fresh this early on in this design process, is is, is my gut feeling. Like, whatever you're working on, I feel like there's got to be a whole bunch of work that has to be done structurally and has to be done about, like, how the thing actually Whatever this thing is, I'm assuming it's some sort of computer thing. I, I could be wrong, but I, I kind of got that impression from it. Well, you um, said UI, so... Yeah, so if, if it's got a UI, uh, you know, and you're deciding right now, like, where the buttons should go that are going to be used in five years, whatever you're doing in the rest of that five years is surely going to change your understanding of the problem, and you're going to go back and have to change the UI. Uh, like, I feel like I don't understand how you can design something now and then not have your mind change about it in five years and then release it. It seems like you'd be changing your mind constantly. And I can't, I can't imagine a project where you have that five-year sort of release date. It must be something big that's sort of beyond my understanding. Um, but it seems like you'd be changing it right up until the very end anyway. So being fresh wouldn't, wouldn't have to worry because you sort of put that fresh layer on it, right? As it goes out the door of whatever the sort of hot trend is at the time. Are you saying you can't think of a UI project that would take that long or any project? I can't think of a UI project that would take that long. I can obviously okay. think of like regular products that would take that long, but not really a graphic design project that would take that long. Like surely if you're tied up, like if you're doing the graphic design for like a space program, it's going to take that long. Like sure, the whole the whole process will take that long, but you making the graphic design to go on the shuttle is not going to take five years. It'll be, you know. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, like I, I was going to say signage for a building can absolutely take 
that long because it is during the process of the construction of yeah, the building. Yeah, that's how long a building takes, not how long the, the actual sign design takes. You know, that's one small aspect that surely if the building was ready to go and ready to put, have signs put in it, you wouldn't say, well, it's going to take us five years to get these signs right. So That is true. I see what you're saying. people struggle yes. for five years before they get there. And the, but that's probably what's happening with him. He's probably working along a bigger process and he probably yeah. has to kind of continue designing through, like, the, the process that I'm used to that take four to five years, you design and then something changes, and then you redesign or exactly. redesign slightly or redesign totally, but the process is a continual redesign. But mm-hmm. you do have to have the building blocks first. Like, that part, you can't shift that much. Like, you kind of have to have your, your rules and guys to begin with, and then you, you update as you can, but you don't do huge overhauls at that point. Well, I, I don't know. I, I would say, at least with the projects I've worked on of a big scale, though nothing of this size scale, it seems, I, I think with UI, you should be prepared to change everything, change all of your fundamental assumptions uh, because it's c- comparatively easy. You know, if you're designing a 600 page book and you decide, oh, let's just change the baseline grid in the last month, like you probably can't do that. Um, but with computers and code and stuff, it's all very flexible. You really can make a big change late in the game if you want to. Um, so I feel like working on a project of this scope is probably just a matter of changing your thinking to be about, you know, you're not going to design something now that people are going to see in five years. Uh, because whatever you did now is going to change a whole bunch. You're basically on this journey. Uh, and I think the journey should be like, don't think about what it's going to look like in five years because whatever you're doing now, it's not still going to look that way. Uh, think about just doing the best thing you can to solve the problem as it sits before you and continue solving the new problems that arise when you learn more about the problem and when you know the thing gets built more so you can actually play around with it and test your assumptions and you know just be prepared to to change it right up until the very end. And then you will have done the best you could possibly do. And whether it's fresh or not is... I don't know, hopefully irrelevant. Mm. But I wonder about all the barriers, though, because uh, I guess the question that was going through my mind is uh, how close are they to, be, to implementing these things in the UI themselves? Like if it's somebody who's savvy with, like an example, like HTML and CSS, then it should be easier because they can go in themselves and make these changes. But if it's a ah, designer who's actually removed from that, it actually depends on maybe a front-end engineer or another designer to actually implement, implement these changes, then there could be barriers in the way. And yeah, That's a good point. So maybe this is a project where the design is supposed to be done in a year, and then they're going to build it, and then it's going to be released five years later. So it's like the work does have to be done design-wise. Uh, yeah, that's it's that. very possible. I mean, there are yeah. plenty of processes that work that way. Oh, like, absolutely. It's pretty... Actually, I would say, honestly, if if you're working with... Uh, you know, a development team that is not a part of your team, you're probably handing off PSDs or something similar, and maybe you don't get a chance to look at it again. Like, it's a pretty nice mm-hmm. opportunity to be able to work very closely with a development team throughout the entire process, but it is certainly a luxury in a lot of situations. So, yeah, and I'm uh, I'm wondering too because it, this could be the sort of thing that um, I guess the only thing I could really grasp onto is maybe like a, a, a research team uh, because they end up doing things that do take four or five years or ten years. And you have to, I mean, like what you guys are saying, you're designing along the way, but a lot of times you kind of have to have some sort of assumption like, okay, this is what the un- the button universally will look like. And you kind of have to make that up front. Or maybe our checkbox looks like this, and it becomes something that's implemented then and then just becomes more and more of a nuisance to change for developers down the road because as years down the road, they have more important things to worry about than changing the way that checkbox looks. I think sometimes it's important to get out of your way as a designer early on when you're talking specifically about software projects, um, especially if you do get an opportunity to revisit your design decisions, you know, in three months, six months, two years. Uh, the best thing you can do is kind of not put pressure on yourself. Um, I always tell myself that, you know, you don't need to decide right now what it's going to look like. You just need something to start with. Like you need 
a, a building block. And you could later on decide that building block was totally wrong and you're going to sort of change it, but you can't iterate unless you have something and they can't can't build and test the software unless you have something there. So you got to pick a color, you got to pick a button style, you got to pick a sort of structure and a navigation or whatever things you have to pick. Uh, and for me, like, it's kind of like science. You know, you make the best guess you can that is what you think is going to work, but to try and pressure yourself into coming up with what is definitely going to be the perfect solution for all time is too much pressure. And I think you've got to paralyze yourself that way. Uh, you got to do something and then, you know, put it in the world or put it in front of yourself and put it in front of your team and sort of uh, figure out from there what's good and what's not good about it and kind of improve it that way. Um, and it's definitely much harder if it's a situation where you're, you know, you're going to design the whole thing from beginning to end and then pass it off to somebody else who's going to build it beginning to end and you're not going to have an opportunity to revisit those sort of assumptions. Um, I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm not convinced you can build software that way that, you know, works well, honestly. And that's just my, that's kind of my personal ethos, I guess. That's yeah. fair. Well, I mean, I mean like, is I complete... it... Oh, go ahead, Dan. I was going to say, are we, are we answering the question? You know, like, that's, that's fair oh, if yeah. that's not the way you think it, it should work. But does that mean that there's no possible way to solve this problem oh i mean I, I, andy actually had a really good um example for that that basically i mean you have to start with something and i think that as long as there is the opportunity to fix or change those things that you had to make quick decisions on up front that that it's okay like the thing that we are doing right now in the office is that we start out with a lot of really bad decisions up front just to be able to get stuff out the door because you know th there was a need and we had to fulfill it and what we've done since is that we've taken chunks like, okay, if we wanted to universally have buttons styled this way, or if we want to have our dialogues presented in these different fashions, that we turn them into systems, we make those decisions uh, that, that works a little bit more widespread and it's a little bit more thoughtful and just better, you know, like visual design and everything like that. And then we nail down that chunk and then we move on to the next chunk. So we don't try to design every single thing at the same time. We just go chunk by chunk by chunk, and that has ended up for us working out really well because we know that, you know, we're probably not going to go back and revisit dialogues once we've done it once for a long time. So um, we might as well just address it once and then keep moving uh, for the sake of, uh, I guess, progress. Yeah, I mean, I guess there are two different ways we could perceive this question. I think we've answered the, you know, if this is a thing you get to design not just today and tomorrow, but also the day before it's launched five years from now then I think we've kind of answered that side of it. I, I would try your best to get out of your way and not put too much pressure on yourself to be timeless and to be, you know, something that's going to stand the test of the next five years and just do something and continue to improve that something uh, until the day you can put it in people's hands. Um, the harder question is definitely the one, okay, let's assume that this person is working in a way that uh, they have to hand this thing off and they won't get to sort of revise it. Um, and, you know, that's the way a lot of the world works, as we said. And I, I you know, we're privileged, I think, in many ways to be able to work in a process that we like and we think is successful, but not everyone is privileged that way. And I think an important part of being a designer is being flexible, being able to sort of work in uh, maybe not the most uh, perfect situation. So let's assume- and I would say like, not we're, we're not all so privileged to always work in that situation. Like it, no. it comes up plenty where you, I'm like, for example, I'm not working in, in like the constant, like back and forth iteration of a website. Sometimes you do have to hand it off. Like, yeah. no, I, I just do want to recognize that, you know, I think there's a lot of designers out there that would kill to work at Pentagram or kill to work yes. at a cool startup yes. or kill to work for a company where they get to, to pick the rules and decide who they're going to work with. Uh, yes, that's true. Most people are not in that position. Uh, we are, and we do get to do the kind of work we like to do most days, which is, which is nice. Um, so if you can't do that, you know, if you're, if you're in a position where you are, you know, 
trying to work within a system that may not be the most uh, friendly to a sort of iterative design process. Um, I think there are things you can do in that situation too. And I too have been in that situation in the past. And I think every time I look back and I was in a situation like that and I had a decision where there were kind of two different options and one of the options seemed safe and boring and one of them seemed uh, more interesting, more sort of uh, unique and kind of out there um, and more kind of designed. Every time I went with this with the second version where I was like, oh, this is more unique and more interesting, that's the thing I ended up regretting. Uh, I, right. I never ended up regretting the thing that was just kind of plain, uh, maybe unexciting, maybe it didn't seem ingenious. Um, but that thing is what stood the test of time more so than the thing that was very clever. Uh, and I am using clever negatively there, as I, as I have taken to doing <laughs> in, the, in the past few weeks. Um, so that, that's one thing I would say is like, if you have that, that fork in the road where you kind of have these two different options... Um, maybe lean on the more conservative side because you're not going to see this thing in the world for five years. Um, yeah. Oh, and, and make decisions that aren't like, if you don't have any control over the execution of it, then maybe make decisions that aren't like incredibly difficult to execute. Cause very often what that's going to mean is somebody's just going to screw it up and you don't have a chance to fix it. Um, you know, the, the kind of like less risky, yeah, you know, it's not, not fun, but to, to make the less risky decision in almost every turn. Um, and actually, I think the thing, another thing too is is uh, it's actually like the exact opposite point we made, you made earlier, Andy, about you know kind of iterating your way through it and kind of changing things as they need to change. If you're in a situation where like, let's say that the development is like you hand something off, it gets built, and then that's done. You're, there's no budget to go back and change it. Then then the important thing is just being consistent. Like the thing that's going to make it look janky and old and weird is if you do continue to iterate, but old pieces don't get rebuilt and you have this like cacophony of different elements. Like make that simple decision early on and just keep consistent with that early decision rather than I think what, you know, a lot of their instinct would be is like, well, I'm bored with that thing. So I want to make it new to me. And then you get to the end of this process and you've done that over and over and over again. And new to me was just because you were bored, but the end result is that you have this, weird mix of elements that don't seem to really go together and you forgot the the whole of it you just remembered you working you know being bored every day yeah i I do think that you have a very good point about the consistency Uh, the other thing i would say is you know commit which is kind of right in the same way you're talking about the consistency thing like if you have a, a little like shred of of a idea of a theme of a sort of aesthetic um carrying that through sort of faithfully to everything that is available to you um, at least guarantees that you will have something that speaks in the same voice in five years. And if that voice feels a little dated, if that voice maybe isn't spot on, at least it's, you know, clear. Um, There's a very interesting um, sort of perspective on compromise that I've come to think about a lot lately, which is that, you know, if you compromise on something, um, what very oftentimes you get, at least in design, is you have, you know, two parties that both think the thing is not going to work and it's going to be the other person's fault. Uh, and then it's it's very hard to actually evaluate what went wrong when you have you know two ways to point the finger at the uh, at the end of the day when something didn't pan out exactly as you wanted it to you want to improve something further um, so I think it's important in all design to kind of like you know put your foot down and make a stand and not like hedge your bets too much uh, because if you do hedge your bets then it's hard to tell where things went wrong uh, you end up having this kind of Frankenstein it's hard to evaluate um, something that I think about a lot and I mean to to kind of like write a little bit about this because I think it's a really important idea that people don't talk about too much is the idea of designing for sustainability. Um, And I don't mean sustainability like, you know, green environmental sustainability. I mean like 
when you design a book or you design a science system for a building or you design something that is, falls under the realm of more traditional, I guess, graphic design, there is an end state and you're designing for the best possible end state. Um, and it's so hard not to carry over those ideals when you're designing something for, for a digital product or for a screen or for an interface. Um, but I think it's really important to design things so they can change, uh, to make a decision and recognize that there is no way the decision you just made is going to last forever, ever. No, it doesn't matter what it is. It's, you know, if this product continues on, uh, that decision is going to change at some point. Uh, and it's very important, I think, to, uh, for example, if you're designing a product you're going to hand off, to document the systems that led you to make the decisions you made. So don't just tell the developers, like, make it this color, make it this font, uh, you know, do this, do that. Um, but explain uh, sort of the underpinning that led you to make those decisions. Explain the why kind of behind those things. Um, hopefully in some sort of like, you know, style guide or some kind of like, you know, design document you can hand off. That way when someone does want to, you know, change the color in the future because they found out this color with this shape means some horrific thing in some foreign language, then they will sort of know the context under which you chose that color originally and be able to change it within the system you designed. Um, I think that that kind of documentation is much more important than we give it credit for uh, when you're designing a product that is guaranteed to change, uh, which is the nature of all software, I think. That's interesting. Are you making kind of style guides for websites now? Like, yeah. Are you handing off style guides for, you know, larger UI design? Yeah, we've, we've gotten in the habit of um, a few of our clients we've had for a really long time and they've their business has grown tremendously. We started working with them when they were very small and we were kind of their entire de facto design and oftentimes development team you know they were kind of starting off with an idea with a business model and they were in the business we would build a product and now they're big companies that have their own internal design development teams and sort of managing that relationship has been something we had to work on and we found the best way to do it is to sort of make these documents i say a style guide but it's not you know it's not like the uh the new york subway like brand guide that everyone's seen on tumblr where it's got these beautiful spreads and it tells you like you know, how big to make the font and whatnot. It's basically a, mm. a written document. It's a big pile of writing with a few examples that um, doesn't explain the what as much as it explains the why behind what we did. Um, and it's amazing to kind of go through and explain the things that we as designers take for granted uh, and see kind of the lights turn on in a, a developer's eyes when you explain why you chose this color for that thing. And they're like, oh, that's, it's crazy that you thought about it that much. It's like, yeah, that, that's our job pretty much to think about things a lot uh, and make sure that we do as good as we possibly can. Um, I think very oftentimes there's this sort of divide between designers and developers in the technology space. And I think it's largely due to the fact that most designers didn't take the time to explain the why. They just, you know, I think developers, whether they are doing it in a sort of mean way or not, kind of see designers as people that are just handing off the way it should look and maybe don't understand some of the challenges they're facing. Uh, and, you know, I think explaining the why is a very good way to ensure, uh, or at least do all you can to ensure a sort of a healthy progress and lifespan for the product because things are going to change and if you haven't documented the sort of underpinning and the underlying systems then there's no way to change that in a sustainable way that's interesting i'd be interested to see one of these documents if uh if you have any you're allowed to make public or anything well, i can show I mean, you so... i can't make them public but i'll send them to you all right you got right. you got that friend da baby there you go i like that <laughs> <laughs> oh man i don't know i just i spend so much time working on kind of identity guidelines you know i feel like i started working on identity guidelines and thinking of them as pieces of design in and of themselves and then kind of as time has gone on i think of them as so like such functional documents that mm -hmm. i um i don't find myself like spending like worrying as much that like this like as if this book this is going to be like a printed book and it's gonna be like a beautiful piece it's like well not like the the purpose is like to explain 
how to use this logo somewhere else or like where to put it or what yeah. to do with it or and I, I can I can appreciate that the the practicality of that document like reaching its way into other mediums because it's not like why wouldn't it? But it's it's clearly served a purpose for almost any other form of graphic design. Like why wouldn't it reach its way into into the web? Yeah, it is really important to me, and I I do think uh, this some of this kind of bleeds into the the code portion of uh, design too. But like writing a CSS document for a website, if you're a developer and you've been handed a PSD and you're told to make it look like that is so incredibly different from writing a CSS document if you're a designer and you understand the sort of invisible systems that have made the page look the way that you've made it look. Um, yeah. Because you basically design it with those invisible systems and then when you want to change something, you can just change one of these sort of high-level things and it sort of bleeds down and you can actually... like. For me, one of the reasons I do encourage people to learn to program if they are interested in the web is because when you do something like that and you actually make the system alive and then you can change something and watch it sort of morph and change uh, and truly see the system working. I mean, you can never, when you're designing things in like Illustrator, you can't never really see the system. You see it in your head and you sort of, you know, you'll paint a, a keyframe of it. You'll paint one sort of instance of it and then you'll paint another instance of, of it and you'll sort of like, you know, have to do all this stuff in your head. But when you actually see it working, uh, it's an amazing insight. I think it's a sort of the power of how we design things. So like the way that I write code is very different from the way that an average developer writes code. Uh, and I write that code for sustainability, assuming that every single one of these things is going to change at some point. Um, and that's a very different, you know, it takes longer. It's, uh, it's more labor intensive than if I just made it look like whatever sort of it's supposed to look like. Um, but I think it's totally worth it because that's the nature of all these things is, you know, you have a color palette and you calculate all of your colors based on fractions and mixtures and combinations of those sort of main colors. And if you want to change one of those, it can sort of bleed across the entire site. And it's a, I think it's a much healthier way to approach things. So I, I hope, I hope this answers the question to some degree. I, I feel like um, whether you're handing this off or not, you shouldn't think that you have to make a decision now that's going to stand in five years. You should make a decision now that is in a good place to be changed now or in five years uh, and build and build for that sustainability in your design system the very practical answer to the question is the kind of less mannered the site is the less it's going to look trendy like there's no way to pick a thing that may or may not be trendy like if you think there's even a possibility that it is trendy it probably is going to be a thing that makes you think of this era and like five years is a pretty long time for something to age especially on the web so i think if there's any doubt in your mind that this thing might make you feel like a site that came out in 2015 instead of 2019, then probably don't pick that. Yeah, I guess some of this like general stuff that I consider to be important all the time is extra important here, which is like design something that is intuitive to the medium. Uh, let's assume that HTML and CSS and JavaScript are still going to be around. It's possible they won't, but I think that's a fairly safe assumption. Uh, and if they won't, then frankly, you have no hope of designing something that's going to be you know, working in five years. So we have to take that as, as, as for granted. Um, if assuming that's still going to be around, then yeah, like build something that fits with those pieces uh, very naturally without, you know, trying to force it to do something it doesn't want to do. And to me, like web fonts are still a thing that the web doesn't really want to do. Like I would kind of be wary doing web fonts. I'd be wary doing one of these sort of hip JavaScript libraries that does crazy SVG HTML canvas stuff. Uh, you know, hopefully these things will just get more and more adopted and be more and more commonplace. But I think your your safest bet is kind of designed for the uh, the safest, most foundational part of the system.
it is a lot more pressure answering listener mail because I know that one guy is out there like yelling at his headphones like, no, I I can't revise it. I have to hand it off. You idiots. You didn't understand. That's what I'm trying. I'm trying to steer the question in like any direction that it could go. I think there's any number of, of you know, he didn't give us enough information to know exactly what he's working on. Like, I'm assuming it's a thing he can't even talk about because he didn't tell us what it is. So I think the real answer is like, I, you're right. Like you do if in the ideal situation you're revising as things come at you and you're solving every problem that you get. And in the less ideal situation, you just design something that doesn't have any of the things that you can spot as trendy right now, or that you can well look back in history a little bit too. Like there are easy things to spot. Like, do you think some of those emigrate type faces don't look like emigrate type faces from the nineties? Of course they do. Cause they're so mannered and kind of weird and great. Um, <laughs> I look, there's things I love about them, but like, no doubt you can tell what time they, they come are of from. a time and yeah. place for sure. And nothing wrong with that. But, you know, anything that you think of is fashionable. And most importantly, most importantly, keep listening to our show for the next four or five years. That's very important. Just listen to our show in five years and just do what we say then. Yeah. yeah we're going to answer this question so in five easy. years. <laughs> <laughs> what should Mike do today? Well, he should make sure that he designs the correct brain beam to shoot into his uh, his viewers' brains with the. We're so dumb. We didn't just say make cannon. it a wearable. Why didn't you just make this whole thing a wearable? Oh, God. Should be some sort of flexible e-paper display, maybe with some carbon nanotubes in there, uh, and it make it like a circle though. It's like reactive. The whole thing's a circle. Yeah, circles of the future. You got no corners. You yeah. Can't lose anything. Yeah, I can, time is a flat circle. Or you got infinite corners. Think how many corners there are to place icons. Now all we got is four corners. Yeah, exactly. That's that's a really interesting idea. Yeah. No, I I, I do love the de- the design of a product where you're like, this person clearly just ran out of corners to put stuff in. Like, their only idea for how they could design an interface was to stick stuff in corners, and then this thing here was the fifth thing, and it didn't really fit. I mean, let's be honest. Corners are great. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. boy, I love me a corner. Don't even get me started. Oh, what do you like? You like a nice uh, obtuse corner and maybe an acute corner? I, Matt, I bet you're a, just a square, 90-degree corner kind of guy. You probably don't I'm fuck around. I'm a real right-angle corner kind of guy. Yeah. What about that you? top right corner, got to put some stuff there. Going to be visible. Yeah. Can't have, but you can't have two top right corners. This is the problem. This is the problem with the world. I like me, I like me a nice 60-degree corner. That's a good angle. You know, here's what we got to do. We got to start designing screens that have two top right corners, or three even. <laughs> I think we should have a whole episode <laughs> of the show where we just objectively talk about shapes and colors and <laughs> angles and letters and we just talk about which ones are best and worst and you know gossip about capital l's and how hard they are to kern as fucking assholes yeah uh it'd be a fun show so it's my turn for the happy ending then you're first no, so this one is actually uh, it's more of an interaction design sort of thing, so it's not uh, quite the lickable UI or whatever you want. But this time around, when the consoles came out, there was the Xbox One, the PS4. Everybody was talking about this bullshit second screen experience, whatever. It was like the new buzz term this time. This time around, what is that? What does that mean, by the way? I don't even know what that means. So what it means is that, like, if you were playing something, uh, whatever, like Assassin's Creed, whatever the the latest one of that game is, I think it's four. Like, you're playing the game itself, but then there was a second screen experience. And maybe for that one, it's like a map that you have so that you know what that, where you're, you're sailing or whatever. It's supposed to be complementary content to whatever you're playing. Okay. And, like, it's, you know, it's a novel idea. It turned into the biggest buzzword, and it hasn't really done what everybody hyped it up to be. Surprise, surprise. And so Xbox, like, I have the Xbox One, and they said, oh, we have a second screen experience. It's an app for your phone. I said, okay, fine. It's an app for my phone. What the fuck is it going to do? 
So I downloaded it to see what it was. It's called Smart Glass. And what I realized is that it was actually the one thing that I was hoping for consoles to finally have. And what's so nice about it and what's so useful about it is that anytime that you have to try to uh, control anything on the Xbox, either it's voice command, which is, has lackluster results, or it's like this whole wavy hands thing with the Kinect, and that doesn't really work ever, or you use a controller. And a controller is really clumsy, especially if you have to type something on like a, a keyboard that's sitting on the, on the screen. Uh, so this thing is actually really useful because say you're in Netflix, say you want to do a search, so long as you have the app open, it gives you the keyboard that you could type in. So it's finally like you, you don't have to do all this clumsy like typing around on the, on the controller. But what's really cool about it is that instead of having to use that for anything else, you can actually just use your phone to control the entire console, which is awesome. Um, so that if you have to go up or down or left or right, normally you'd have to use a joystick. This thing, all you have to do is just swipe up, swipe down, and everything is like this really good one-to-one -one ratio with how you would normally use one of the other peripherals where it's just, it's a lot more fluid and actually feels like you're doing what you would normally do on another peripheral. Um, out of all the other crap apps that they've made for everything else, it's just like, it felt like it was exactly what they needed to do. And uh, I think they actually executed it quite well. How is this different from like the uh, the Dreamcast controller? When I think of a second screen experience, I always think of the Dreamcast, which had the screen in the controller, um, and th that seemed to me like oh, maybe either yeah. ahead of its time or just too novel. Because I know the Dreamcast did not succeed financially in the uh, actual sales department, but, but that always seemed like such a cool idea to me. So I mean, like it was kind of it was more of a novelty at the time because uh, I think it was just it was too soon and not enough people knew really what they wanted to be able to do with the thing. But a good example of that, like where it's kind of integrated into the, um, the controller is the Wii U has that and it's in the gamepad. That works okay. Uh, it's still kind of clumsy. It's still kind of clunky. Bottom line is that when you go to a console, a lot of times you're, you're doing something watching Hulu or Netflix or Amazon video or doing something that's not playing a video game. So why would you pick up a controller in the first place? And a lot of times you don't want to have to pay 50 bucks for a remote. So it's actually more convenient, and it's, it's just a better experience just to have your phone anyways. Sweet. This has been On The Grid, episode 68. You can email the show, mail at onthegrid.co. You can tweet to us using hashtag onthegrid, or find us individually at MattMC, at Andy Mangold, and at Dan Auer. If you want to submit a link for us to talk about in the show, visit onthegrid.reddit.com. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars on iTunes. I've been getting a lot of questions about the music, so I'm going to try to say it like a human being, almost like a robot drone. The interlude music this week is from the Cosmic Analog Ensemble and Immortal Beats, and the theme music, as always, by Girlfriends. Thanks for listening. Until next week. Oh, God. You guys know about the Double Down, right? KFC? Are we going to talk about the Double Down in this show? No, it's Is that what's back. happening? I've ha I, I don't give I a don't, fuck. I've heard of it. I don't, know actually, I don't actually know what it is. Okay, so take here's the Double Down. Take the goddamn Chaka Croc or whatever the fuck it is. Chaka Dial. Chaka Dial. Come on. You throw it, in it to the center of the earth. Oh. It's the worst stuff. It's terrible. Okay, so Matt, a Double Down is, imagine a chicken sandwich. But instead of two yep. slices of bread, it's two pieces of chicken. 
instead of wait two chick a chicken in between two pieces of no, chicken? no 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 but the insides instead of it being chicken is actually just melted cheese and bacon so it's two pieces of chicken as bread yeah. For cheese and bacon. Yeah. Matt, Matt, think of how if you were if you were on the marketing team for some horrible, terrible fast food restaurant that basically sells salt sugar to people and calls it food. Think think about what if you were to try and come up with something that was so ridiculous that everyone would talk about it all the goddamn time, even though it still sucks. I'm, I'm imagining it. KFC <laughs> is trolling you, Dan. They're trolling everybody, and you're falling for you know, it. I have not been to a KFC in probably like five or six years. Yeah, but right now you planted that seed, and someone out there just like packed up their shit and walked yeah. out to the local KFC. That's how that's how marketing works. Does that mean you're supposed to pick it up by the chicken? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Matt, Matt's, Matt's formulating his mental image over there. Dan, yeah. is is this is this your happy ending? Are we talking about the double down? Is this <laughs> is this what it is? 